Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm speaking with Julie Stern. Julie is a four-time best-selling author with titles that include Learning That Transfers, Visible Learning for Social Studies, The On Your Feet Guide to Learning Transfer, and Tools for Teaching Conceptual Understanding. She's an advocate for sustainability, equity, and well-being in education, and has spoken internationally to help facilitate this in many schools around the world. We discuss how conceptual learning and transfer complement each other in teaching, how teachers or school can accurately assess that transfer has taken place, Julie's stratification of different kinds of concepts and how this might apply to English, David Perkins' book, Futurewise, and where his life-worthy knowledge would fit into this conceptual stratification, whether Julie thinks the current paradigm of dividing schools up into math, social studies, English, etc. is an appropriate model looking into the future, and when designing the closest thing to a perfect assessment, what she thinks it would entail for students. And lastly, when, if ever, is a good time to do project-based learning with a class. Thanks so much to Julie for being a passionate and engaging voice on the topic of conceptual learning and offering a framework that better allows IB educators and beyond to crystallise their teaching approaches. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. you you and the team or your team were maybe the first to combine transfer and conceptual learning in the same approach when it comes to education and I think conceptual learning is something which is I think I became aware of it in maybe 2015 via some of the stuff in the UK and transfer is something which I think teachers have always talked about isn't it just that that's the gold standard isn't it we make sure Mm. that they're learning transfers from unit to unit, year to year, school to real life, I suppose. So um, can you explain how the two coexist and, and complement each other so well in terms of the conceptual learning and the, the transfer? Sure. So, you know, I think that uh, for me in my journey, I started with meeting Lynn Erickson and going through her concept-based approach. Um, and, you know, even the phrase concept-based puts the emphasis on the concepts. Um, and, you know, she always, she and um, her her partner, uh, Lois Lanning, always talked about the transfer being the goal. Um, however, I think at some point in my journey, I realized that uh, transfer was almost getting lost in the concept-based movement in, in people's, you know, it's almost like the concepts were over and above uh, transfer and right, exactly. And then, and then meanwhile, other people we're talking about transfer and transfer goals and how do we make sure students are able to apply their learning to new situations. Um, and so I, I was fortunate enough to, to co-author a book with John Hattie, Doug Fisher, and Nancy Fry. Um, and they talk about surface level learning, deep levels of learning, and then transfer as the ultimate sort of level of learning. However, the research out on, on learning um, you know, when I asked John Hattie why it was a triangle, because with service level learning as the base, deep as the middle, and then transfer as the little tiny part of the top, uh, he said one of the reasons is that the research is quite thin on transfer, on how do we get our students to apply their learning to new situations that look different from the first context. Um, and so that that was, you know, kind of somewhat of my my journey with a lot of different mentors and at the same time, I want to give a shout out to Susan Brookhart, who's a, a person um, who writes about assessment. And at the same time that I'm kind of knee deep in all of these other practitioners, uh, Susan Brookhart says, and it, it makes total sense now that I now that when when somebody says it, that if the the test or the assessment that you give students is not a situation that is different from the situation you've taught in class, then you can't be sure it's higher order thinking. Like higher order thinking is also very trendy. And it was certainly in the early 2000s when I was director of curriculum. uh, We wanted kids to do analysis. We wanted kids to synthesize. We wanted kids to evaluate. Um, But we can't be sure they're not remembering or recalling my analysis if it's about the same situation that we talked about in class. And that was, I have to say, that was such a huge moment for me in my career of like, oh, wow, 
When I think I'm giving students an analysis level question, if it's of the same novel that we've already talked about, if it's of the same context or social studies situation uh, in the humanities, then they might, you might be technically an analysis level question, but they might just be recalling my analysis or someone, their classmates or someone else's. Um, and it makes perfect sense when you think about it. And so um, that's when I really started to look into transfer and said, and and really was reading Books and things that were not designed for K through 12 education, they were designed more for the cognitive science realm, the college level realm, even post uh, undergraduate realm about transfer it was really sciencey, meaty stuff. But the thing that I kept seeing over and over again was something like concepts or conceptual learning or organizing ideas or things that transfer or abstract or things that illustrate um, the deeper patterns of a situation. And so sometimes the research won't use the word concept. But for instance, Perkins and Solomon are two of the big names in uh, the world of transfer. They'll say things like, I think I have certain quotes memorized, transfer of learning always involves abstracting um, to to connect a, a situation to another situation. So I hear the word abstracting to a higher level of thought. And I think that's through a concept. Um, you know, what ties World War II to the current uh, situation going on with Russia, Ukraine are ideas like, well, when we think about whether or not the United States should get involved or other countries get involved, we're thinking about isolationism, de-escalation, we're thinking about authoritarianism, we're thinking about aggression, we're thinking about uh, de-escalating aggression, all of those to me are concepts. And so that's what connects one situation to another. Mm, this, Yeah, I think the idea of, like, I'm trying to think of examples now within my own subject where this would apply in terms of because I've definitely had that sense before where the the example that I've given or like an exact like a, a written exemplar I've made it available to them and they've said you know when we're writing our equivalent of whatever that they're being asked to do at the end of the unit are we allowed to look at your example yeah sure no worries yeah don't worry about it and you can look at your plan you can look at the example and you know, you might get like a load of sort of, I don't know what, stories or, or, or descriptive writing or um, analyses or, or something like that. And you think, my God, these are brilliantly written. But if you look really carefully at the sentence structures you've used in your own exemplar, and then you look at the students, some of them, they are just, they're, they're completely aped in a way. And it's, you wonder mm -hmm. whether, well, is this, is this transfer or is this, you know, mm -hmm. can this really, well, can this realistically be transferred moving forwards i think like the strongest students in english certainly like i could have a conversation with the year 13s or 12s like the, the the students who are kind of doing the ibdp and stuff about theme and about character and about you know setting and these kind of disciplinary concepts so that there is a kind of there is evidence where like this transfer has 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 happened, I suppose. But in in your opinion, like how can teachers or schools accurately assess that transfer mm. has taken place um, within a subject? So I know that you're from a social mm -hmm. kind of studies background, or what we would call like INS, I suppose, in the mm -hmm. IB kind of ecosystem. But mm -hmm. they, I know that the IB are big on transfer across disciplines as well so right, like, right. How, how can we yeah how can we accurately assess that transfers actually taken place do you think julie um so it, the the most important factor is the situation has to be completely different it has to be new to the students um and so in some ways you know what i think is the ultimate goal is that the students find the situation for themselves so just listening to you uh, give those examples of to me or concepts in the language arts theme character setting um i just i don't know why what it instantly reminded me of i found in 2020 when i was trying to find all of these resources for for teachers in the midst of, of school shutdown. Um, I don't know why I just, just stumbled upon this whole genre of YouTubers who analyze songs. Like when an, um, um, uh, an artist, a music artist releases a new song, uh, they're like, oh, watch this guy, listen to it for the first time and analyze it. And I remember this one guy who would pause the video and he would say, look how he sets the scene. 
in the video, right? That setting. Um, and there was one part where uh, their song lyric, it just so happened that in the background of this music musician, some crows were on some trees. This was just a coincidence. And he, he says some line that I can't even recall at this moment. And the crows fly away. And it matched the lyric. And the person, the YouTuber who was like watching this noticed that. That is the type of thing that you know transfers happen. When, when students can do that for themselves, even in something like a, a music video, um, when they can say, look at how they, the setting matches uh, the mood of the text, the lyrics of the text, um, and they're able to to illustrate that and explain that. I think that's how transfer, how, how you know. Um, mm. Now, and one thing that teachers get nervous about, especially when you, even when you're talking about, like some schools are really traditional where they all read the same text, the same novel, for instance, or the same poem. They'll analyze the same text for like 12 weeks. Um, and I'm like, okay, if that's the scenario, I'm like, just every once in a while, bring in a, a poem, bring in song lyrics, ask students to find uh, a TV show or a YouTuber or song lyrics or a TikTok that kind of mimics a lot of the same conceptual ideas of the text that we're reading. That doesn't take a lot of time. And that's an easy way um, to infuse transfer into, into your classroom. The next level layer I've seen a lot of schools do is say, okay, we're going to all read, uh, you know, dystopian fiction or whatever. And we've got this group can read this book. And it's almost like more leveled texts, like depending if you've got a group of kids who are at different reading levels, I've seen teachers do that. Often teachers will say to me, Julie, I can't give students a text or an assessment if I haven't read the text. So they start to get anxious about letting students read something that they haven't read. And to me, that is a hurdle we just have to get over because it is 2023 and you know we don't know everything and nor should we uh, that our students would know. My kids are seven and nine and they already can do things on the internet and, and know things and learn things that I don't know. They're seven and nine years old. So can you imagine, like you said, a year 13 student? Um, and so for me, it's not, I don't, I love when the students are able to connect the conceptual understandings to texts that I don't know anything about. <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah. If they can almost teach me <laughs> or even better, an authentic audience, like another year group, uh, their parents, uh, yeah, some other authentic audience out there. That's not me as the teacher receiving the knowledge. If they're able to sort of explain the conceptual links to a situation that maybe I don't know about, um, that's personal to them. To me, that's the Holy grail. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. I think I've listened to, um, I've spoke to actually uh, like Trevor McKenzie before and I think in his books, he talks a lot about front loading certain non-negotiables or establishing what non-negotiables are. And even in a lot of the IB literature around inquiry, it talks about how inquiry done badly is when it's kind of the the, the seeds are sown on rocky soil so to speak so you mm -hmm. haven't front loaded anything mm -hmm. um and and i think that is such a necessary part of it because you can be so excited to do what you've just kind of talked about in terms of you can go away and read whatever you want to read but if you don't anchor it with that first conceptual understanding first it's almost like um what's the word sort of you have like complete control of the class at the beginning and then you take a little sure. bit away, a little bit away, a little bit away. I can't, I can't think of a pedagogical term at the moment yeah. to describe it, yeah. but that's exactly what, and that's the beauty, I suppose, of MYP and IB in, in general, I suppose that there's a lot of encouragement um, to do that. So I think, yeah, I think the, the, the gold standard there, as you mentioned before, that it needs to be, something completely different or it needs to look a lot different from perhaps what the teacher has taken the lead on in the class i i would completely agree with and um, i think going back to your other point about you know almost like uh, maybe you're looking for scaffolding or sort mm -hmm. of guided mm -hmm. inquiry structured inquiry free inquiry um Correct, but the yeah. idea of um increasing student independence is a big part of of transfer and i think that 
to me, a couple of things you said came to my mind. One, what are we front loading? To me, the concepts are what are most important. That's what we're front loading, not background knowledge about Shakespeare. Mm. Often we think when we think like front loading or we think scaffolding or we think background knowledge, we think facts and details. And I would say, no, <laughs> concepts are what link kids' present lives to Shakespeare. Mm. Um, it's, you know, teachers, I think the 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 thing that teachers um, who are most passionate about and, and often give me the most pushback are the teachers who they are so passionate about Shakespeare because of the conceptual ideas, because mm. of the literary techniques that he used and because of the sort of everyday human lived experience themes that he explores. Um, but we often don't make those things as explicit for our students. Yeah. We almost cloud it by, you need to be able to access this text. So I need to make you make sure you understand old English. I need to make sure you understand what was going on at the time. Um, you know, we kind of give all, I need you to memorize this character list. Um, you know, all mm. of those things teachers often think about as background knowledge. But to me, it's like, no, okay, what is this Shakespearean play really about? And then I'm going to start there with students' lived experiences. Like, can you think of a time where you've experienced betrayal? How mm. is that felt? You know, like really kind of harnessing students' lived experience because betrayal is the main conceptual idea that we're going to explore here. We're going to start with things kids understand. Then we're going to maybe go to their favorite song about betrayal. Then we're going to like really go deep into Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, then we're going to get the kids to transfer to something else. And so to me, the the non-negotiables are the concepts and it's a cycle of constantly looking at a specific context, abstracting out to those big ideas, going, zooming back into a particular mm -hmm. text, abstracting out that habitual habit is what trains students to do that. They're not going to do it if we don't, well, maybe like 10% of them will. Um, but the average kid is not going to do it. The research is clear on this. If we don't habitually teach them to zoom out and say, what's the big pattern that I'm seeing here that I can relate to my lived experiences, that I can relate to my other favorite characters out in the world. Um, and that concept process is, to me, what gets kids able to do that open inquiry, that completely independent inquiry into a specific situation is because we've trained them with the intellectual moves to look at a text, zoom out look at a text again, zoom out and kind of build those patterns of thought. Yeah. The granular and the kind of big picture. I, yeah, I it, again, that really resonated with me with that idea of we need to teach the context. We need to teach the character list. We need to teach. I've sort of put myself under a bit of pressure since um, starting NYP a long time ago, or IBDP a long time ago. And it's the sense that I think you should start every single unit with, as you say, the concept so like previous experiences current interests what do you already know you know this kind of thing so if we're doing something on uh i don't know mysteries or something like that such an easy concept to talk about in terms of like that genre of of, of mm -hmm. fiction or movies they know about it already you can have a really nice two or three lessons you know hook them in get them to kind of uh, engage in an authentic way and then in terms of that um the, the clock's ticking then in terms of if I want them to go out and be independent, if I want them to be inquirers and kind of take ownership of this, I really don't have that much time to kind of front load, as you say, sort of the conceptual stuff and the things that they need to know from within the text. And it really makes you prioritize what's important from that anchor text. I think I was literally thinking today, do the kids need to know what iambic pentameter is? Do they really <laughs> need to know? Because we're doing, I can't even remember what we were looking at now, but it was, I think it was a sonnet. I think it was a sonnet and I had like this Singaporean poet, Bowie Kim Cheng. And they know how many lines there is. They know the rhyme scheme. I mean, we started talking first about kind of environmental issues and things like that. So that was our way into it. And then we started looking at it. And I was like, do I need they need to know and it just it had to go you know one of those if you had all the time in the world yeah it'd be nice to spend kind of five minutes get people up to the front of the class and do de dum de dum but 
in the grand scheme of things, I just don't think. And this is quite sacrilegious, I suppose, for some English teachers will think uh, yeah, it's quite you're sacrilegious. Gonna, you're going to get some hate mail. <laughs> Where are listening uh, to this? You know, I don't, I think there's a time and a place for it. And it wasn't the time and it wasn't the place, sadly. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's, that's a really, yeah, that's a really kind of interesting take on it, actually. Um, main, this is something that I have back and forth with um english teachers my partner who's also an english teacher other other departments and stuff like that and it's such an i think it's such a useful thing that you have um in your work which is the distinction between levels of concept and i think you go into it in slightly more detail than the ib do so for anyone who's listening who's not an ib educator if you're putting a middle years program unit or curriculum together there's there's two key kind of concepts i suppose there's the key concept and there's discipline uh, sorry related concepts to me the related concepts are disciplinary okay. concepts that's what we would call it in the uk at least the key mm-hmm. concepts interestingly i think have been designed to allow for transfer across different subjects so yeah. creativity would be one in english language and literature and that is shared in the art so like uh, visual art and and um drama and things like that but but you go into it in a little bit more more detail than that um i was going to ask you um i was going to give you some concepts from english that i've got in my mm-hmm. curriculum julie but before that how did you i'm obviously okay with it but for anyone who isn't familiar with it how did you kind of go into a little bit more specificity with regard to the type of concept Yeah, well, we we just, you know, the main point there is that there's different levels of abstraction. Um, And, you know, really the sometimes concepts, especially sometimes they can be way too vague Uh, and they're almost so vague that they don't find, you know, they're not very useful at all. Um, So, for instance, in mathematics, everything is a pattern. Mathematics is like sort of the language of pattern seeking Mm -hmm. and Um, You know, so, so pattern. Okay. Right. When kids are like five years old, (laughs) I want them to know what a pattern is. And I also want them to be constantly looking for patterns in mathematics. Um, But eventually that, that concept is going to lose its sharpness Mm. um, because it's too vague. It becomes too vague. And there's also hierarchies of concepts. Um, and so they're almost like those nesting dolls, you know, like you you open one up and there's another one in there. Uh, and so it just we I have three co-authors in learning that transfers. I have two co-authors in my other books. Um, and so, you know, we kind of went rounds and rounds and around on what do we call these darn things? And finally, we just settled because, you know, we had a deadline. Um, but <laughs> so like some people are like get really intense about what we named them and why we named them that. And even, you know, I'm happy to do that little exercise where you throw some concepts out and I let you know, but ultimately it depends on the age of the child, the exposure to the discipline of the child and what you're trying to do in this particular unit. And a couple of things that my longtime co-author, Christopher, who's just an absolute genius, uh, said that really resonated with me were, first of all, you can't pay attention to everything. So if everything is equally important, then kids pay attention to basically nothing. Mm. (laughs) And I think that that's so true. A lot of it is to what we call anchor concepts. They anchor a unit, the analogy of an anchor for a ship, uh, you know, to keep it to keep it moored uh, in in the sea. And so that's what we mean. Like in this, if, if you're talking, if you're reading a certain Shakespearean play, if you're reading a certain novel, if you're. Um, if you're doing, say, you know, dystopian fiction or mysteries or whatever, what are the three to five most essential concepts for that particular unit? Whatever is going to frame sort of your unit, there's three to five that you want to come back to again and again and again. And then um, what we call subconcepts, people love this analogy. I say it's like, think of your favorite TV show. There's some characters that don't show up every single episode. Um, you know, they, they're like the friend, the uncle, the neighbor, you know, whatever. They show up every few episodes, but sometimes a whole episode is about that character. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just like in and out, but your anchors are the stars of the show. They're in pretty much every single lesson. Those anchors you want, you know, students to come back to again and again and again. The subconcepts, how they interact with those anchor concepts, give the anchor concepts a sharpness. They give the anchor concepts nuance. 
Um, and so that's really kind of why we call them anchor and sub within a unit plan. We started to call disciplinary sort of lenses to be these concepts almost the entire academic year. We want kids to similarly always look for. Um, and so that's kind of what we, we've got four layers, sub being the most specific, anchor, anchoring a unit, the next layer of abstraction, and then disciplinary lenses, sort of the next layer of abstraction. And then finally, uh, so if for your discipline, I feel like audience purpose message, those might be disciplinary lenses. Like yeah. we're not going to talk about them every single day, yeah. but those are the three that like every time kids enter a text, they need to say, you know, who wrote this? Why did they write it? You know, and wh what do they hope to, to take from it? You know, those kind of questions um, that that are almost like a duh to teachers, but they're not duh to the students, especially students who are going to seven different academic disciplines in a day or, or a couple of days. Um, and so those are what we call disciplinary lenses. And then finally, transdisciplinary, as you said, very similar to the IB's um, key concepts, but those are the concepts that really transfer across disciplines. And we kind of want kids, the students to, to see those connections across disciplines. So if it was, if I was to give you some examples now, like I can also try and guess what these would be, but um, so creativity, I mean, creativity is a key concept. So I can, I think for English, it's creativity, communication, connection, and perspective. Would, would you refer to all of those as transdisciplinary? Sure. Communication is really broad. I think uh, they're all so broad. Like they, I think they're so, and I, I guess it works. Yeah. And, and I guess that's what it, it has to be. But the, the concern for me always is, Julie, that it's like, it's the lethal mutation thing where mm -hmm. I, I could work in a school for 20 years and have a generally good idea of what we do when we do perspective, so to speak, and go to another school and it's just completely different. And that's not necessarily such a bad thing. So maybe lethal mutation is a little bit too pejorative, but I, yeah, I don't, I, I would, I worry that there's a bit too much shift when it comes to those terms. To me, my my passion is what are what are the teachers and the students doing with these darn things? Yeah. Um, and so you know that's when I work with IB schools who ha, who I almost feel like in one sense, of course, I can hit the ground running faster because they know what concepts are. But in another sense, I almost feel like I have to undo yeah, some yeah, of yeah. Them. Think about yeah, um, yeah. You know, and so I feel like really with those four, perspective is the juiciest to me. Um, yeah. But I think I think ultimately um, it's neat. What one aha that I've had in the in the last several last few years, I should say, is how cool it is to look at what we think of as a disciplinary concept in one situation and then put that disciplinary concept in a different situation, uh, in a different discipline, that becomes really interesting. And the mic drop example um, that a teacher created, actually is a principal of a school, but a former PE teacher, he looked at defensive stance and player positioning and recovery defense in, of course, physical education. Mm. But then he said, let's look at that, those concepts, okay, from one sport to another sport to another sport, easy enough, right? Let's look at recovery defense, player positioning in predator-prey relationships in nature. Uh, and I'm like, oh, delicious. And then we had the students transfer to a politician's speech before an election and how his speech, and now we're seeing a lot of this, it was then President Trump, but we're seeing a lot of it around the world where suddenly if the politicians don't win, they call the election unfair. That is player positioning and recovery defense. Mm -hmm. um, that is, uh, you know, something really interesting. And so I'm just kind of throwing those out there to say, um, if you follow our basic little model of get the students to acquire understanding of individual concepts, get them to connect those concepts in relationship and get them to look for those concepts in new situations because it's called transfer. So it's for us, it's acquire, connect, transfer. If you're doing that with the concepts, then all of them can become juicy. But mm -hmm. if they just are a poster that lives in the classroom and it's almost like, you know, you guys have in the UK, where's Wally? We have in the US, where's Waldo? Like you like find these things. Otherwise it just becomes like, I found 
concept, move on, boring. You know, I I feel like, uh, you know, I once watched a teacher who was like, Julie, we do this. When I read Charlotte's Web, we talk about friendship. And I'm like, that is not to me conceptual learning and transfer of learning. Mm. Um, The kids are just like, here, I found friendship. (laughs) I'm like, yeah. Uh, it becomes, you know, just like a, a, a concept hunt and we stop there. Um, and so really it's about how does perspective influence communication? The the relationship between those is where um, the the really exciting stuff happens. And so I suppose I'm less passionate about which concepts than I am about what do you do with them? and mm. <laughs> What are the kids doing with them? But I, I think I've heard you speak before about like the anchor concepts though and the anchor concepts really come into the fore in terms of what often drives a unit and I think I, I think anchor concept is such a good word or such a good term for it's called different things depending on where you go in the world again in the UK it would probably called uh I think of the word now I think trans I can't get transdisciplinary out of my head but basically <laughs> kind of the idea that you can go home and have a conversation about that topic with your mom and dad you can yeah. probably go to a different subject and say hey you know history teacher biology teacher we'll learn about this in 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 English how does that transfer to blah 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 and I think that's that to me is something which the teacher or the curriculum leader can take ownership of, be passionate about, and mm-hmm. then it's kind of transferred to the students. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're given that prescriptive creativity, communicate, like they're, they're good words. And pattern I know for, I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, is one of the mathematical yes. key terms. And I remember speaking to a math teacher about this a while ago, and he he kind of echoed something that you mentioned um, in 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 our conversation which is he said you know if, if you're in the primary school it's really interesting to show kids kind of mosaics and tiles and things like that and look at artwork from portugal or kind of you know moorish art from spain and stuff but they can't be doing that in year eight and year nine you can't say look at this pattern and measure the triangles you need to start moving beyond you know that into more sophisticated levels of abstraction um so if we're talking about an anchor um, concept, would would heroism be an anchor concept? Do you think? Yeah, it's delicious. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's yeah. So I think the ones which, and this is the this is the massive kind of movement a couple of years ago in the UK, which I think you know the ideas like heroism, masculinity, betrayal. I think that you mentioned before, sort of like power prejudice all these things like uh, yeah an uh, anchor concept is such a good term for them um what about character then um julie would that would that be a sub concept to you or would that be more of a disciplinary lens great question oh snap um i think that yeah for for younger children character is is huge um, yeah. By the time they get to secondary or senior school, that that be, that becomes more like a a supporting actor, or you know, or or just a given. So to me, sub is like a supporting actor. It kind of gives the sharpness, yeah. to it. but almost like you said, it's disciplinary. At some point, it, that almost becomes a disciplinary lens because it's just yeah. like, yeah, of course, we're always looking at character. Almost like I said, audience, purpose, author, message, you know, yeah. character. The, setting those just become given by the time the children are 11 12 13 years old um those should be things that they automatically look at one thing i'm working on right now that we're talking about concepts is something that i've seen needed in the field in the world and i'm like man i guess i should do this because nobody's done it yet um is uh, basically a conceptual framework and that what i'm working on is per discipline and across disciplines what are those most important fundamental and powerful concepts is what Gerald Nosich calls them. Threshold concepts is a, is another one in the in the research that just says, look, if a kid doesn't get the idea of uh, character by age, whatever, uh, then they're behind. You know, we need to make sure that they've got that. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of it depends on when we're talking about concepts. We're we're talking about how integral to the discipline is this idea, um, which character is enormous. 
Um, how old is the student? What is their level of sophistication? And so with, with something like all the ones we've already named uh, that are, you know, what we would call sort of disciplinary lenses, character setting, plot, author, message, purpose, um, audience, those are explored ad nauseum in my experience working with schools. So much so that they lose their sharpness because they become boring to students. So like, here we go again, talking about setting. Um, and even like you said, I am a, I am a botameter. Uh, those all those little specifics are to me mm. overall just literary devices, mm. which overall, even I think to me, more importantly, is the idea of wordplay, the idea of uh, using words to set a tone, to set a mood, you to set a um, a. I don't know if you would even call it just going kind of going into transdisciplinary, going into music, but sort of to set like a beat, to set a a pulse, to set a rhythm, to mm -hmm. set, um, you know, that that is what we do with words. That is what hip hop does so well. And and typically, I don't know about the students you teach, but all around the world, you've got at least a few kids in the classroom who appreciate and adore hip hop. And so I'm like, what they're doing is is remarkable um, with how words are are dictating so much about this text, um, and so really it, it it's it's about making sure that from year group to year group, the concepts don't lose their oomph, their deliciousness, because we're not increasing in sophistication of what we do with those things. Um, and so one thing that I work with a lot of schools on is, okay, let's map out your curriculum. Let's see how many times we talk about the word character. And then what are we talking about with the word character? Um, eventually character becomes characterization, which is a little more sophisticated. Um, but overall, uh, oh, I got to tell you this quick story. I love to tell stories about my kids, but I think this is hysterical. Um, just like how, uh, you know, kids understanding of things morphs over time. My son is in third grade and his teacher says to me, oh, how's he doing with the move? Because we're about to move from the United States to Sao Paulo, Brazil. That's a big move for a kid who's nine years old. Um, and she says, he wrote a, a story about a kid who didn't want to move. And I was like, oh man, that's shocking to me as a parent, because first of all, he didn't tell me about that story. And I didn't think he was really struggling with the move. Mm. I talked to him about it and he says, oh, mom, when you're writing historical fiction, the character is supposed to be like kind of sad in throughout <laughs> the story and then happy at the end. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. He was like, yeah. oh, mom, I am not Timmy. He's like, I just had to write something called historical fiction. I love that he's like schooling me on historical fiction. But he's but he said, I am both excited and a little bit nervous about the move. The character, when you're writing historical fiction, can't be both of those things. And I'm like, oh, no, that is what makes a character really great. <laughs> but he's nine, so he's not quite there yet in his, like, thinking about how a character has can experience two emotions at the same time. Yeah. Um, he sort of is following this formula of other texts that he read. And sort of back to your your point before of students mimicking our analysis or our writing or our whatever, uh, he was like, oh my gosh, I saw a pattern. All the stories that my teacher read to me, <laughs> the character felt sad and then oh, they felt happy. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, that idea, it made me realize, like, oh, okay, as he grows, he's going to see how delicious it is for a character to have this internal struggle. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of what I mean by like, what are we talking about with characterization? Like by the time they get to be 10, 11, 12 years old, they should start to really see how a character can be conflicted, can have internal struggle, um, can have internal versus external. Uh, so what I did was I immediately talked about Louisa from Encanto. I don't know if you've seen the movie, um, but Louisa is the strong one in the movie Encanto. And she has this song surface pressure where she's like on the outside, everybody thinks I'm so strong, but on the inside, I'm freaking out. Um, and so we just immediately started talking about that because I knew he knew that song. I knew he knew the character. I knew he knew the lyrics. Um, and so he could instantly see this sort of internal conflict, internal, external struggle happening between characters. So he could see that it doesn't have to be this, but he just thought this genre, this is how you do it. <laughs> um, that make, thought, makes a lot of sense to me though, in, in terms <laughs> of the idea that 
as you said a moment ago, like if you've got a curriculum where the word character is coming up three, four, five, six, so, you know, if, if you're not paying close attention to that and thinking about it now, which I haven't thought about before, it is quite easy to fall into the trap of maybe they're just learning the same thing six, seven, eight times in a row. They're not really going from, okay, a character symbolizes a certain set of beliefs and values. Mm -hmm. Oh, now look, let's look at an anti-hero. Now look, let's look at, you know, a tragic hero. Now let's look at you kind of attack it from all the other different sides that it could be or you just you know we've always done these books these same kind of texts and they've all got characters so let's talk about characters yeah i think it can be a lot more um intentional than than perhaps um it, it can sometimes yeah and like yeah. what a beautiful t way to link to to the humanities um, yeah. i mean we, we now are going wait a second were these people that we have statues to yeah. uh, that we named buildings after uh, all of these questions that are coming up about every human is flawed. <laughs> and so what degree of flaw um, are we willing to rename a building, take down a statue, you know, all of those things. Yeah. Uh, super interesting. And I think that um, we, you're absolutely, you're spot on. I work with a lot of schools to say, let's look at the curriculum. Let's look at the text. Let's look at how the concepts are playing out. And 100% of the time that it could be better. It could be more sophisticated. It could be more complex in how we are unfolding these concepts year, year on and year on. Mm. I'm not, I'm not sure whether you've come across David Perkins book, uh, future wise, he lists out, I don't know the, I can't remember the exact term he uses, but I think he calls it like life worthy knowledge or something like that. Um, and he kind of lists a number of, uh, topics that he believes students should know in terms of, I think, as you said before, threshold onset. So he talks about, he talks about quite a few, but this quest, aesthetic, basic tools, justice, kinship and the like where where would you where do they fit into the for me personally they feel like anchor concepts but what would you say about those yeah i mean i think that overall i do have that book on my on my shelf right behind me um so thank you for reminding me i'm gonna pull it off the shelf and, and and take another look uh but i think that um sometimes something really big could be both labeled as a topic and a concept mm. um, like aesthetics. That's enormous. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think aesthetics is to me a bigger idea than kinship. I think mm. that's a little bit more specific. So just like when I look at them, kind of how my brain categorizes things, things, basic tools that gives me like a question mark. I have to like go back and be like, mm, what is that? What's going on there? Um, and so I feel like to me, the the disciplines, the academic disciplines still serve a very important purpose. Mm. I feel like I might be one of the few education futurists who who believes that schools need to dramatically change and that mathematics as an entity, it's very valuable. Um, and so the way in which I'm organizing this conceptual framework that I'm building is by the traditional academic disciplines, as well as um, sort of character education or social emotional learning or whatever you want to call it, soft skills, uh, 21st century learning, uh, what a lot of people call the six C's or deeper learning. Um, but those ideas are also concepts to me. And those are also really important for us to say, what are we focusing on? I think that student attention and teacher attention is um, really, really, really important. So yeah. often we'll say like, okay, our school has these, you know, the IB learner profile or the uh, approaches to learning skills, or lots of other schools have other similar things. Um, and they just live on the wall. <laughs> um, but you know, what I try to do with schools is say, okay, in term one, semester one, whatever you call it, what is year six focusing on across all the different disciplines? Um, and so I think a lot of it becomes once you name those things. Well, I go to schools and I'm like, what are you? Are you an IB school? Are you not an IB school? Are you a British centric school? Are you an American centric school? Are you a Canadian centric school? I work with a Chinese national school. Um, and then so I'm like, I'm pretty agnostic. Tell me what you say yeah. these kids need to know by the end. And then. Um, let's make sure that what we're doing with those things 
really comes to life and really takes root uh, in students' brains and their lives. Um, and so, you know, I think I think it's pretty hard to name like what's worth knowing. Mm. Um, but I think as we talked about before, um, the really memorization without understanding is t- completely useless to me. Uh, so I'll just say that. Um, I think that, and to me, memorization is without understanding can also be phrased as memorizing bits and details that aren't connected and that aren't part of a larger organized body of understanding in your brain are completely useless. And the research is clear that kids forget them. Uh, They might regurgitate them for the sake of a test. You test them five weeks later and it's gone. Yeah. (laughs) Because it was just disconnected from their organized structure in their brain, and it and it and it, they just forgot. Um, and so I think that a lot of the trends on uh, moving away from the academic discipline scares me. And almost conversely, the inverse is this obsession with memorization and established mm. knowledge and retrieval practice for the sake of just remembering stuff is also worrying bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like it's, oh. it's so um, funny that if, it's so funny that you say that in terms of the um the kind of the idea of like kids sort of being sort of asked to regurgitate these things again and again and again it's it's, it's something that's kind of been going on in my household recently with my three nearly four year old he's learning Chinese and he's just blowing me away with how quickly he's picking up these characters and his pronunciation's incredible. And there's one particular word that he could read that I thought, my God, he's only seen that a handful of times and his pronunciation is amazing. I said, what does it mean? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> God, <I just laughs> no idea. It's just two noises. He knows to make two noises, like one after the other, and it gets like a big thumbs up from me. So I have no idea what I'm saying. And sometimes I'm like, that is exactly what we're doing with the kids sometimes when it's like come on come on you know this you know this and they can give you the answer and then you you're kind of like oh fantastic well done you've remembered it and they've got no idea how that applies to anything 100 with little kids teach us so much my dad loves to tell this story my my nephew is 16 years old now but he when he was like six or seven years old he kept saying joe you need to have a spirit of cooperation i mean he would say that to him all the time and then like four years later he goes uh, Grandpa, what does cooperation mean? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like that's so so yeah. so true. You've got to be so um, careful. Yeah, yeah. Um. The so I mean, you mentioned it a moment ago about you know ma- mathematics having like a really important place in the curriculum still, and and looking forward to this this kind of uh, conceptual framework you're putting together. Where do you stand on the paradigm that we have currently in terms of dividing schools up into? math social studies english languages and things like that do you think it's i mean no one knows what the future holds particularly this year with all the kind of ai stuff that's going on but do you think it's still an appropriate model looking into the future gosh such a great question i mean i definitely think schools are are way too siloed by age by by a 45 minute bell ringing i mean that's gotta stop um so let me be clear about that at the same time you know, science is still extraordinarily useful. My right-hand woman, Julia, is a scientist. And so we always kind of joke about, I'm like, you know, what we, the equivalent of me, uh, for me, for social studies um, is facts and details and dates that, that, that kids need to memorize and have with automaticity. I'm, I'm a little skeptical about, about a lot of that. Um, and, but at the same, so, so occasionally I'll say something about the periodic table of elements and she's like, lay off the periodic table of elements. <laughs> um, you know, and so I still do really think that, but it's not just the periodic table of elements. It is about the more I work with science, I work with teachers across the discipline and the more I work across the disciplines, I realize that energy and matter seem to be the most, if not among the most, most essential concepts in science. Like every single time kids encounter a situation, I want them to ask what's going on with matter? What's going on with energy? (laughs) Like that's gotta be uh, two of the 
first few questions that you ask yourself. Um, and I so I think if we're crystal clear, and that's why I'm writing this conceptual framework about the age level of the kid and what are those most essential concepts, disciplinary specific concepts, and kids are fluent in those and they can really understand what it means to ask questions about, for instance, in science, energy, and matter, then I think project-based and interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary learning will make a lot more sense. What scares me is that we just go to project-based learning and we haven't gotten crystal clear about what those anchoring concepts are. Yeah. And uh, then students learn a whole lot about like, say, pollution in one particular river. <laughs> and then they're completely unable to transfer that not only to like another river, but another situation where pollution is an an issue or human environment impact or, you know, whatever it is. And so uh, for me, I think that concepts and conceptual transfer in particular of this cycle of constantly training students to look for concepts, their connections and how they play out in different situations is the answer to how do we bust through the silos without losing the integrity of these centuries old ways of organizing the world. Mm, I think the project-based learning thing is a really um important thing to raise in in that regard i heard like a, an excellent analogy with regard to project project based learning uh, i can't remember how long ago now but they sort of said for anyone who's ever put ikea furniture together via mm. the use of a youtube video i mean mm. it, it's rare that you completely give up and you don't succeed in putting that bed or wardrobe mm. or shelving unit together you do it 100% you do it but i wouldn't in a million years, expect myself to be able to then leave that set of drawers and go away and assemble another one from another store, let alone construct one myself. I don't mm. even know if I would back myself to be able to build the same set of drawers again eight weeks later without the aid of mm. the video. Mm. And so it's like, yes, the project-based learning, um, sorry, the project in that situation you know, the job got done, so to speak. But I suppose if you want to talk about cognitive load or something like that, I was so maxed out in terms of what I was being asked to do that, as mm. you say, you can't necessarily expect most, if not all, students to to transfer that learning elsewhere. So I suppose the, the question that it begs the question, it, when, if ever, is a good time to do project-based learning with a class? I know that you spoke about this before, Julie. So wh where do you stand on that? Is is there a good time and a good place to do it? And if so, when? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it, I think, you know, authenticity and, and relevance and hands-on, all of those things certainly enhance learning. And at the same time, just as I'm a little... No, I'm not a little. I'm a lot skeptical if a an English teacher who only reads one text for like mm. six weeks <laughs> without at least a poem here or there or a, mm. a song lyric or a YouTube video um, that they're going to similarly analyze. I'm also skeptical of a single project that lasts six to 12 weeks of one particular situation that doesn't have an emphasis on the concepts and an emphasis on transfer. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, if, if you're going to choose between my own children, giving them a worksheet or giving them a project, I would choose a project. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but uh, above all is, are we pointing their attention to those conceptual ideas? And are we habitually, I mean, like two or three times a week at a minimum, asking them to transfer their learning, apply it to a completely different situation. Even if it's homework, go home tonight, find the concepts in your life, come back to the next day, report it out to me. Like it really doesn't have to take a lot of teacher instructional time, um, but the students should be looking for those concepts across situations. And, and to me, obviously that's my life's work. That's paramount before we start talking about inquiry, project-based, uh, personalized learning, tech, tech, in the classroom, you know, all those things to me are the second order questions that are answered after you've gotten clear about what the concepts are and how you're facilitating transfer in the classroom. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I th This very morning, I, on a slightly, if not completely tangential point, um, a student of mine was asking me if I'd messed around with 
chat GPT much. And I said, oh, yeah, I've, you know, this and that. And I said, actually, Felix, do you mind kind of putting something into it for me? Can you put in, write me a uh, murder mystery story which features a foreign domestic worker based in Hong Kong? Did it? You know, we get we fed it all this stuff yeah. uh, in five hundred words, and yeah, it, it the thing came out, and it was, and he was like, "Is it level seven? That would that be level seven? I was like, "Do you know what? It's not far. It's pretty good." Mm-hmm. I said, "Can we make it?" Uh, you know, change some of the sentences to a positive, change some of the sentences to three verb sentences, change some of the, and I, you know, da, 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 da. and it was, it was, I didn't want to show my hand too closely in terms of like, I didn't want to show how impressed I was. I was like, well, you know, I know it's, I said, I know it's good, but you don't know it's good. Like you only know it's good because I'm telling you it's good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's the difference. I think you need to get to a point where you know enough about the subject to be like, nah, actually, this is quite good. Now, I'm sure he's not necessarily going to kind of take that to heart and not use it ever again uh, in his kind of like unending pursuit for, you know, pure knowledge. But I think this is such a good time for for us as a department within my school to discuss this question. But I'll kind of pose it to you now as like a final question. What do you think, if you were designing the closest thing to a perfect assessment, I know there's no perfect when it comes mm-hmm. to assessment but what do you think it should entail for students particularly now that we're living in a kind of post chatbot mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. um well i mean the criteria so in my latest book uh, learning that transfers uh chapter seven chapter seven yes is all about assessment mm-hmm. um and so i'll just say you know i i still hold firm to the to the criteria that's there one novel situation it has to be completely new to the kids mm-hmm. uh we haven't talked about in class. Two is uh, the more you know, the, and, and among that novel situation, the closest to authentic, authenticity, the better. Um, three, the students have to reflect on their application of of the conceptual relationships. Um, and so, even if they they do a performance, uh, they create a piece of artwork, uh, they do a podcast. You know, teachers are really into. I love authentic audiences. Uh, they still need to do what's almost like an artist statement. They still need to do some sort of metacognitive reflection about yeah. how the choices that they made when they did whatever they did uh, reflected the concepts and their relationships. Um, and so that reflection piece is often missing from what I would normally say, that's a top-notch assessment. Where did the kids reflect? And if they reflect orally, they reflect uh, written, you know, it doesn't really matter to me, but the the students have to say, here's where um, I thought about word choice. I thought about different literary techniques. I thought about um, putting this word here, but instead I changed it to this word. Um, You know, I think those types of of reflections are, are crucial for us to really see whether or not the students have built that organizing understanding in their brains that allows them to do it again. Do you think what in terms of not to put too fine a point on it, but I think I've again had this discussion before and I could almost take what you've just said there and allow it to using that term again, lethally mutate where Mm. I'd be like, okay, this is what we need to do then just say, the kids are coming in on Friday. They're not told what the prompt is. They've got an hour to write it and it's test conditions. I get the sense that that's maybe not what you're talking about. Over over what kind of time span would you see potentially an ass- assessment taking place? Is it is it reasonable for me to say on a Monday, okay, I think we're ready to do this now. This is the prompt. I'll let you plan it for a couple of days, write it for a couple of days reflect on it for a couple of days but i want it done within you know the next you know insert amount of days here what do you think about that i mean i'm pretty radical when it comes to assessments um and so i'm trying to like answer your question given the reality of most schools which is what you just described um, I'm like, mm, in a dream world, neither of those things. Um, All right, okay. In a dream world, students are coming in and saying, hey, Miss Stern or Julie or whatever they call me, um, look at what I found in my own life today, how it relates to class. Boom. And I'm like, 
you got this, you can move on to whatever other thing we're doing. Um, and you, and I, and it's about that kid and it's not the whole, you know, 120 kids or however many you teach. I know that that's not, that's very far from reality uh, of where we are. So coming back to your question, I think a mixture of both. I think that um, students can have more time. It almost sounds like a lot of your question is about how much time do you give students? Uh, yeah, like the relative freedom. Kids. Yeah. Um, or, you know, how much do I want to control whether or not they go ask ChatGPT? You know, all of those things. I, I, I say I say a mixture of both. I mean, all of that to me, I'm collecting evidence. And more importantly than me, the child is collecting evidence about their understanding and their ability to transfer. And when they think they can and know they can, and the two of us have kind of check, check, confirmed that they can, then they've they've done what they needed to do. Um, and so I think a lot of the ownership of assessment, we talk about this a lot in learning that transfers, needs to shift to the student. They need to know where they are, where they're going, where and what are the next steps uh, that they need to take. They need to get excited about how it applies to their own lives, their own interests, their own experiences. Um, that's the, the perfect assessment. But we're most schools are far from that. So, you know, I often work with schools and be like, okay, what's your reality? Uh, What's your accrediting body or what, you know, uh, what are the rules of of whatever, whoever it is that deems you're a worthy school? Uh, You know, we work within those constraints. But um, ultimately, I kind of want to blow the whole thing up. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's why it's so interesting to work within the IB framework, because you've almost got. I can't remember who who said this to me like in terms of the they had a brilliant analogy for the IB where it was you've got two kind of central hubs or hearts when it comes to the IB one is in the Hague and one is in Cardiff and it's almost like the Hague is just this free love freewheeling <laughs> crazy place where anything goes and Cardiff is this really like button down you know kind of three piece suit wearing now and it it comes out so 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 clearly when we when you consider the dp and they ask you to do this learner um um portfolio where you're doing exactly what you just said there you're bringing stuff in um you're saying like okay we just did advertising so look at this photo i took this morning while i was on the underground or the subway i'm going to upload it to my thing blah 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 but ultimately that portfolio is never marked it's never sent off it's never whatever and we have those kind of external exams and it's it takes me back to something I said to my line manager a year or so ago now. I said, I love everything about the NYP framework. I love like, you know, the inquiry elements, the global context elements, the push for like the ATLs. I like the the disciplinary concepts, the good key concepts. The 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 thing that I don't like, the one thing that I would get rid of is just that assessment criteria. That assessment criteria that is like <laughs> in your final piece of work, you must do, yes. do, 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 do. And it's almost like there's there's the kind of Cardiff, the Cardiff sort of uh, mentality coming back to. Uh, I mean, you back know, I, older, think, so. I think just to kind of a quick point on that, I'm, I'm maybe I'm just too much of a Libra or something, but I feel like both is OK, that uh, students need to perform at high levels under. Mm. Um, somewhat mm, high pressure type of environment with extraordinary levels of skill and discipline that has been curated over years. Uh, whether that has to be an exam or my kids are little and they, that they experience that every single time they play a really low key soccer match, that is yeah. stressful for these, yeah. these two children. Um, and so I think it doesn't always have to look like the way that it's looked like in the past. I still really believe in disciplinary literacy and um, high levels of, of academic um, excellence. And <laughs> uh, I love the, what you said about the, the the photo on the tube or, you know, whatever it is. Mm. Uh, I love just sort of students kind of developing their own path. And I think really at the end of the day, students' ability to have lifelong learning is crucial and their ability to um work hard often when they don't feel like it yeah 
is also really important. And so the, often I see those as like a debate, uh, almost like what you just described, like just let the kids explore whatever they want to explore. And I'm like, that's not how life works. I mean, somewhat it's kind of where we're going with like the future of careers and things like that. At the same time, people who are wildly successful today, unless their parents were extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, so I'll put that exception out there. Have had to work hard yeah, every <laughs> um, day. Yeah. Something. And so, you know, I do think that um it is a both, a both um type of scenario. Mm, yeah, I I I can understand where you're coming from. I do think that idea of resilience and grit is really important. I think sometimes I think it was like Dylan William once said, sometimes we do have to convince kids that they're gonna have to get good at things that they're not initially that passionate about or that interested in or that confident with but that's where you get to the point where you can understand you know where your talents lie and where your um you know futures going and and this kind of thing but finding that balance is 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 tough but i guess that's why it's a really really satisfying job um most days yeah most days of the week <laughs> most days. um but yeah and and your work is yeah a fantastic kind of compliment to to understanding that julie so the 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 last thing that uh remains for me to say is just thank you very much for giving up uh your time this morning where you are um and just all the work that you do in general i'll, I'll look out with great interest for the the work you mentioned before with regard to the conceptual framework and yeah, best of luck and thank you very much. Sure, for sure. Thank you, Chris.